It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. And now, um, this is an introductory message, and it is in so many ways foundational to the rest of Romans chapter 7, but it is specifically foundational in uh, a much deeper understanding for the whole book of Romans. Uh, It is the third division of the book of Romans. The third division started in chapter 6, and uh, we'll go through chapter 8. And the the text we're going to look at this morning is, is absolutely imperative in our understanding of the Word of God, insofar as Romans is what we call our Constitution, I would submit to you that it is the, um, it's hard to say the most important book, but if I was stuck on an island and could only take one book out of the entire collection of books in the Bible, it would be the book of Romans, because it covers every major doctrine uh, that is in the Bible. It is so foundational, so helpful, and this is message 41, and we're all the way to Romans chapter seven. So we're not rushing through, but we're not uh, trying to get stuck either. In Romans chapter six, the Apostle Paul, the, we move from the concept or the reality of in, the, in chapter five of uh, judgment and then in, in chapters one, two, and three, the end of chapter one, then to two and three. And then we move to chapter five, four and five, uh, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, yeah, let me say that again. We should be more excited about that. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the fundamental reality of uh, the second division of the book of Romans. Um, because of that, there seems to be, the Holy Spirit is, is telling Paul what to write, obviously, but it seems to be that there might be some folks in the church at Rome who would argue then that, well, if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then I can do whatever I want and live however I want, and it just shows the wonderful grace of Jesus in if I sin. And so Paul writes chapter 6, and he deals with the subject of sanctification, That's what he says in chapter 6, verse number 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Having been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him. Now listen to this in verse number 7 of chapter 6, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Paul is making this huge theological point that is unarguable to anybody who studies the Word of God with, with sincerity, and that is this, you are not saved to sin, you're saved to serve. Just because you're saved doesn't give you a freedom to sin. And so he deals with salvation in chapter 5. He deals with sanctification in chapter 6. He deals with it over and over again. But there's two groups of people in the church at Rome that Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is talking to. 
There are what we would call maybe some Christians that believe they should sin, and so Paul deals with that. But there's also people in the crowd, Jew and Gentile alike, the church probably made up of about, at the time of the writing, about 60% Gentile, we believe, we don't have certainty on this, and about 40% Jews, because the Jews had been expelled and now they'd come back. And there would be some Jews and maybe some more rigid, rules-oriented Gentiles that were believing they had to prove their value for salvation. In other words, I want to be saved, but salvation by grace through faith, man, that, I don't just think, I don't think that's enough. I've really got to work diligently to keep the law. There's probably some people even in the crowd this morning, you're like, oh man, I, I, Jesus is great, but I need Jesus, and, and there's a lot of things that I have to do in addition to that. So Paul is dealing in chapter 7 with Christian liberty and our freedom from the burden of the law. And he uses this word law in Romans chapter 7 23 times. Romans chapter 7 is so important to the believer. As Romans 6 says, but I would submit in some ways Romans 7 is, is maybe the, just in my mind, and it might be because I'm studying it so deeply right now, is the hinge on really which much of the New Testament swings. And that is this, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by keeping the law. That doesn't negate the importance of the law. Look at verse number 7 of Romans 7. We'll get to our text in a minute, just by way of, of, of edification. It's going to be a long introduction. At the 8.30 service where I'm more bound by the clock, it was a 15-minute introduction, just so you know. So we're not to the message yet. I'm just preparing you for it. All right? It's the appetizer to the meal. We're just going to have a lot of appetizer today. The meal's going to stink, all right, just so you know. So enjoy the appetizer, all right? It's like meatloaf, but we're having chocolate for the appetizer or something. I don't know. Verse number seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is keeping the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. So Paul's obviously not attacking the concept of the law. Look at verse number 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. I want to be very clear. There are some people who teach, like, the Apostle Paul was, was totally against the law. Come on, you can read that just as well as I can. The Apostle Paul was not against the law in any way, but he was for Christian liberty. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 24, the Apostle Paul says, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Before we get too far into this, we need to understand the importance of the law of God and God's view of His law. For the sake of time, I'm only going to present a few texts, but let me say there are so many more that I could look at. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 9, God's view of the law, relatively common passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, and these words which I commend thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. By the way, God still expects you to teach your children the Word of God. 
God doesn't just expect you to bring your children to church and let some great junior church and super church teachers uh, teach your children. God expects you to teach your children the Word of God. We supplement what you lead in. Are you with me there? It's not, it's no one person's responsibility to, te- outside of the family to teach children the Word of God. Parents, that's your responsibility. You say, well, I don't know a lot. Well, keep coming to church and keep learning every day. And you teach that diligently. You see the Word. It's diligently, intentionally, with emphasis to your children. And shall talk of them. You talk of these things when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you light, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Here's the idea that the Word of God is just talked about all the time in your house. All the time. I mean, we, we could talk about hobbies, sure, and sports, sure, and interests, sure. But the Word of God is to be infused into our home. Everywhere that we go and everything that we do, talking about God is, and the Word of God is not something that is done on the weekend on the way to church or Wednesday night on the way to community Bible study and, and, and uh, adventure club or Friday night on the way to uh, Trail Life and American Heritage Girls. No, this is talked about all the time. Verse number eight, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and they shall write them on the post of thy house on the gates. By the way, my daughters are 23 and 26 years old, and we still talk about the things of the Word of God more than we talk about anything else. And you say, well, that's because, you know, they're pastor's kids. No, that's because their mom talked to them about it all the time. And their dad just said, amen. She's a way better preacher than me. That was supposed to be funny. You're like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she should be up there. <laughs> Psalm chapter 19, verse number 7. If you were alive in the 80s and in church, you probably sat around a fire and sang this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. How many of you ever sang that song? Probably around a campfire, like nine of us, or actually three of us. Where were the rest of you? <laughs> Juvenile hall. Um, Law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. All this talking about the Bible is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they. The words of God are more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. You want to stay away from presumptuous sins, sins that just kind of happen? God, help me, but infuse yourself with the Word of God. The Word of God keeps you from stupid sins. I'm going to say it again. The Word of God keeps you from stupid sins. I talked to a number of people like, I don't know how it happened. It just kind of came up on me. Yeah, keep us back, Lord. Well, how's he keeping us back in context? By an infusion of the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them, the presumptuous sin, not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. 
The foundation for 13 and 14 is an infusion of the Word of God in verses 7 to 9 uh, that, that the psalmist is dealing with. Our belief, our understanding, our reliance on the Word of God. Psalm 78, 1, give ear, O my people, to my law, incline your ears to the word of my mouth. Psalm 119, 9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way. That means wherewithal shall a young man stop sinning and get victory over the sin in his life by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You want victory in your spiritual life? Hide God's Word in your heart. Seek after the Lord. I I was just thinking this week, people say, Pastor, can you give me like three tips to helping my marriage? I can. One of those tips is going to be fall deeply in love with the Word of God and live the Word of God out every day in your life. Hide it in your heart. Don't let the Word of God be a a Sunday morning only thing or a Sunday morning and a Sunday night. No, hide it in your heart. Spend aggregate amounts of time in the Word of God. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.97, with how, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Through thy commandments thou hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Your commandments are always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. That was my life verse in elementary school. I went to a Christian school and I quoted that to my teacher one time in the fourth grade and I got sent to the principal's office. I still had more understanding than that wicked old battle axe. (laughs) You say, where is she today? I have no idea. My mom's with my dad somewhere. No. (laughs) I'm teasing. If you're a guest here, I love my mom. She she would have laughed hard at that and then slapped me later. Verse number 100, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, Jay, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through my precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. John five thirty nine. search their scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Colossians three sixteen. let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart uh, to the Lord. Let Christ's words dwell in you richly. That means abundantly in all wisdom. You're relying on it. And this is how effective it is supposed to be that when you come into the church to the corporate gathering and there's the corporate worship of singing that because the Word of God is so deep inside of you and so rich inside of you and you're so focused on the Word of God and the God of the Word that when the corporate singing happens you cannot help but lift your voice in adoration and praise to the Lord. And then you look around and you see people who are singing. You say, do you look around? I do. I do. Why? Because I want to be taught. I want to see what's important to you. 
Let me give an aside. That's why some of you men who are too, too cool to sing, let me just tell you, you're teaching somebody somewhere that, 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 that it's not of great value to sing adoration and praise back to the Lord. You say, well, I don't have the greatest of voices, neither do I. And I'm singing loud. I've asked him to turn the mic on, but Bernie threatened to leave. You say, I can't sing on key. I, I've never found, I mean, I'll sing on key every once in a while if it accidentally makes its way through my one note range. But I'm, I'm still going to sing praise to the Lord and teach and sing that way. It's a biblical command. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Hey, you just take somebody who doesn't know about Jesus and start telling them to read the Bible with an open mind, read the New Testament with an open mind. If they'll do that, the scriptures will bring them to the point of conviction. I cannot guarantee that they would submit to the word of God, but I can guarantee that the scripture, the word of God will bring conviction into their life enough that they will understand their need for a Savior. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Just a smattering of text about the Word of God. With all that said, over the centuries, men have tried to improve on and protect and give shape, if you will, to what God has made clear in the Word. By the New Testament times, Jewish rabbis had taken the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it is often called, and and they had added to that 613 laws and requirements so that people would follow the Ten Commandments. There were 248 mandates, you have to do this, and 365 prohibitions, you cannot do this. The mandates related to things like worship, the temple, sacrifice, vows, rituals, donations, Sabbath, animals used for food, festivals, community affairs, social issues, family responsibilities, judicial matters, legal rights, obligations, slavery, hygiene, and others. All to keep the ten. The prohibitions related to things like idolatry, historical lessons, blasphemy, temple worship, sacrifices, priesthood, diet, vows, agriculture, loans, businesses, slavery, justice, and personal relationships, and others. To those spiritual laws, one commentator said, the rabbis had added countless conditions, adjuncts, and practical interpretations The attempt to fulfill all the law and tradition became a consuming way of life for legalistic Jews, such as the Pharisees. So much so that by the time they get to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, verse number 10, the weight on the Jews and on the people with a desire to be saved was so heavy that Peter said in Acts 15, 10, now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. The, the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jews were saying that all non-Jewish believers had to first convert to Judaism and then they could convert to Christianity. And Peter says, not even our fathers were able to bear that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
He's writing to help us to understand the necessity and the reality of Christian liberty. There were those in the church, chapter 6, who wanted to live a sin-filled life. Because of grace, they thought they would be right with God. And there were those in chapter 7 who were saying that grace is great, but I still have to perform to be accepted by God. And they had no concept of the freedom that they had in Christ. Let me sin and show how great the grace of God is. Let me work and show how great the effort of man is. And Paul's dealing with both of these. And so he talks about Christian liberty in verse number 7, or chapter 7. Liberty is defined as this. The freedom a believer has from oppressive, the oppressive burden of keeping the law as a means of salvation. It's the reality that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The freedom a believer has from the oppressive burden of keeping the law as a means of salvation. It is the reality that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our works. But we have to work. But our work is seen in light of freedom, not as a means of it. Christians and churches can be the worst offenders at colluding with the oppressive doctrines that say we are justified by works. We're not justified by works. There are people in church this morning, somebody here, there are probably several people here, I would assume, just because it's always the case, who have come with the thought that I need to do better or I can't be saved. I've got to be a better husband or I can't be saved. I've got to be a better employer or I can't be saved. I've got to give up this addiction or I can't be saved. I have to give more or I can't be saved. I have to do this or I can't be saved. I have to stop doing that or I cannot be saved. I can't make God happy, but let me be very, very candid with you. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn salvation. You could give everything up in your life. You could take off every bad thing in your life and add every good thing in your life, and it matters nothing because you cannot work your way to heaven. And that's what Paul is talking about in earnest. In chapter 7. He starts this in chapter 7, verse number 1, where he says, and and by the way, longest introduction in the history of Canyon Ridge. Right there. Won't be the longest message, but the longest introduction. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. He starts this most important paragraph in this most important chapter 
off with a very self-evident truth. And he starts it off, know you not or don't you understand, brethren? He's talking to believers. Some people say he's talking only to Jews. He is not talking exclusively to Jews. He is talking to Jews and Gentiles who know the law. People who, who understand Gentiles who are sympathetic to Judaism without converting to it and Jews and Pharisees alike that would be in the church now. Know you not, brethren, He's talking to believers, and he's sharing this self-evident truth, how that the law has dominion over, or exercises authority over, or lordship over a man as long as he liveth, that the law has authority over a man as long as he's still alive. We could say it this way, the law doesn't matter to you at all if you're dead, just doesn't matter to you. Dead people don't have to follow the law. I'm a chaplain with the police department. Great joy yesterday working out with a couple of cadets from the PD Academy. The staff and I had a great time with them. It was down at headquarters on Tuesday. I've never talked to a police officer in my life and said, hey, how many dead people have you given tickets to? Because the law doesn't matter if you're dead. Uh, this story is told by the Associated Press, March 3rd, uh, 2020. Uh, prosecutors, Los Angeles, California, prosecutors on Monday charged a man suspected of stealing a hearse with a body inside and leading police on a wild chase that ended with a crash on the 101 freeway. James Juarez, 25, faces felony charges, says the article, included fleeing a police officer while driving recklessly and taking a vehicle without consent. It wasn't immediately known if Juarez, described by prosecutors as a transient, had an attorney who would comment on his behalf. Juarez was arrested February 27th after the crash, which closed the 110 freeway. Authorities found the body undisturbed inside a casket in the back of the Lincoln Navigator. They didn't pull Juarez out, lock him up, put him in the back of a police car, and then, you know, do a, a, a takedown technique on the casket and pull the body out of the casket and lock them up and throw them in the back of a different police car. No, they just left it there. They didn't, it didn't matter to them. Why? Because dead people aren't responsible for keeping the law. You say, that's obvious. Right, that's why I called it a self, put the point back up. That's why I called it a self-evident truth. Some people would call it an axiomatic. I almost called it obvious, but as soon as I used the word O, I was going to have to use every word O for a major point and alliterate the message, and we know the Bible preaches against that, so I cannot do that. If you're a guest here, we have one staff member who sins every time he preaches and illustrates every message that way, or he preaches every message that way. He even makes up words to try to preach messages that way. And so I just went with a biblical way of saying this is a self-evident truth. It's axiomatic, like what goes up must come down. You don't really have to test that. Everybody kind of knows that. Everybody doesn't kind of, they know it. If you jump, you go back down. You throw something up, it comes back down. What goes up must come down. It's self-evident. The law, and that's why Paul is made, it's almost an oversimplification. But it's not, and you're going to see why in just a minute. 
And then we see a clear illustration in verses 2 and 3. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, this passage has caused a tremendous amount of trouble for many people. Even many commentators, I I wish I could talk to them about this. Some people want to make this an allegory, an allegory where they parallel every person in verses 2 and 3 with verse number 4. This is not an allegory. You need not try to parallel the meaning. Paul is not trying to be allegorical here. By the way, if you enjoy reading allegories, please let me know. You can send in a prayer request to prayer at canyonridgebaptist.com, and we will pray for deliverance for you. Why? Because I just can't stand allegories. And you might enjoy them. Fine, enjoy that. I have some friends that do. I'm not a fan of allegories. But this is not allegorical nonetheless. This is an illustration. This isn't even a passage about divorce and remarriage. This passage is saying nothing about divorce and remarriage. If you try to start here on divorce and remarriage, you're going to end up at some very burdensome place, which is the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to help us understand. I'm going to say by silence, I have to do work now because I get it. It has often been used to talk about divorce and remarriage. But it really, it's not saying anything about it. It can't be legitimately used as an argument from silence to teach that divorce is never justified for a Christian, and consequently only the death of the spouse gives the right to remarry. Such a discussion on divorce and remarriage, and I would refer you back to our series in the book of Matthew, primarily Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to verse number 12, and we'll deal with that, and as we, we'll deal with it in the coming months as we prepare for our uh, marriage weekender, um, and we'll, we'll look at divorce, and, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 15, that deal expressly with that, and, and they are epistemological, or it's epistemological in 1 Corinthians, and then it's the teaching of Jesus Christ from an Old Testament perspective in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. But we understand there are some biblical reasons for divorce and remarriage. And this is not talking about that. Well, what are some biblical reasons? I just want to give you a little bit of grace this morning. According to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, adultery, fornication, is a cause for divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment is a cause for divorce and remarriage. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 also says, if the spouse of a new believer refuses to accept Christ as their Savior and doesn't want to live with a believer, but tells them, if you're going to stay with me, you have to reject Christ, then that person is also free to divorce and to remarry. That should not be the first objective, and we don't go looking for that in any way, shape, or form. 
But if that horrific burden falls on a person, there is a measure of freedom. Let me give this caveat. With the direction, guidance, and counsel of the local church. Meaning the leadership, the pastor, and the leaders within the local church. It's not just like, oh, he said he didn't want it. No, no, there's, it's, it, it's more than just that. There has to be accountability that is kept there. And an unbeliever and a believer, if the believer is one of the spouses are married, or, or rather are saved after the marriage, the believer and the non-believer should stay married as long as the non-believer will allow. The believer is to never look to leave the marriage. But if the non-believer says, it's either me or Jesus, Paul is very clear saying, pick Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. So I just want to give this by way of a grace that this is an illustration that is not dealing with divorce and remarriage. He's not dealing with that. He's illustrating the liberty that we have in Christ because of our salvation and the bond that we had to the law until a death happened. And so we move from an Ill, a clear illustration to a, a, a biblical or a holy application in verse number four. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, there are some connecting words. Paul start with this axiomatic, this obvious statement. He uses an illustration, and it's, he's saying, now, because what I just said, wherefore, what I just said, Christians, brethren, believers, understand this, you are dead to the law by the body of Christ. You're dead to the law. So there's the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that it would be represented here. Understand, when it comes to salvation, you are dead to that by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're dead to it. Now, let's be super clear here. We're, 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 we're jumping into deep water. By the way, I'm glad that we are. Part of the purpose of the church is to help you grow in the knowledge and wisdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not to simply give you application so that you can go home and have seven points for a cleaner refrigerator. That was off the top of my head. Some of you are like, is that a biblical truth? I'm... <laughs> Honey, where did pastor find refrigerator in the Bible? Word. The refrigerators aren't in the Bible just so you know. Um, but let me give you this prerequisite that we must understand. The law did not die. The law did not die. If you've been here through our whole study of the book of Romans, you, you have an understanding of this, but I'm saying it with great emphasis. The law is not dead. Everyone who rejects Jesus Christ will be judged by the law. 
Why? Because they, had not, they have not accepted the free gift of Christ's blood to wash away their sins. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. You reject Jesus Christ, you will no doubt be judged by the law. Romans chapter 2, verse number 6. The Bible talking about judgment says in God's judgment, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Deeds, works, efforts. Some have taught that when Jesus died on the cross, he nullified the law. Jesus did not nullify the law, he fulfilled the law. There's a vast difference. Christ fulfilled or brought fulfillment to the law. The law, Galatians chapter 2, we looked at it earlier, points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the entirety of the law. He did not kill the law. He came not, he says, to destroy the law. No, no, no. He came to fulfill it. But if you reject Jesus Christ, whether you're online or in church, You will be judged according to your works. Don't bring this verse up. I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Don't lose your spot in Romans 7. We're coming back. All the way at the end of your Bible. Matter of fact, I think it's what the second, third to the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Verse number seven, verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The great white throne, just to help you understand, is where all non believers will be judged. And they'll be judged by Christ one final judgment. This is the last judgment they will face. And I saw the dead, verse 12, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened in another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Notice this phrase, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not written, was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is not a manipulative tactic. I'm not trying to scare anyone to Jesus, but make absolutely sure that you understand this, that if you reject the overtures of Jesus Christ, the conviction of Jesus Christ, the truth of the Word of God, and you will not repent and accept Christ as your Savior, you will be judged eternally by Jesus Christ. You will be found without your name written in the book of life, and you will be cast, verse number 14, into the lake of fire for all of eternity. 
Well, that's so medieval. No, it's just biblical. And I'm not a jerk for telling you that. Absolutely not. The people who don't tell you that and tell you they're preachers of the word, they're the unkind ones. You see, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, the law is very much alive. You will be judged every time you lie. You will be judged every time you speed. You'll be judged every time you run a stoplight in San Diego. Listen, I just got saved so I could break traffic laws. No, I'm kidding. You'll be judged. You'll be judged according to the law. You say, Pastor, no man can keep the law. Right. No man can keep the law. Not a single person in this room can keep the law. And the Bible says very clearly in the book of James, if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. But the reality is all of us break a lot of the law. We break massive amounts of it. Everyone in this room has broken every commandment that there is. And if you reject Jesus Christ, you will be judged by that. And the level of your disobedience will determine the consequence or the severity of your judgment. I, I said this a couple of months ago, and some people were like, I, I, don't, I don't know that I believe that. Well, I hope you've come to a biblical understanding of judgment. If you reject Jesus Christ, live a religiously perfect life. You'll still go to hell, but the suffering will be far less. Because you're judged according to your deeds. And we know that the levels of hell vary, not based on any wishy-washy thing. It's a very clear teaching. How much have you obeyed God? How much have you disobeyed God? How much have you obeyed the commandments? How much did you disobey the commandments? So you take somebody who has been very benevolent and kind and gracious their entire life, but they rejected Christ, they'll have less horror in hell, though they'll still have an abundance of horror that you take somebody who's lived a, a despotic, dictator, murderous, vile, rapist type of life, that person will be in the same hell, but the severity of the judgment will be that much greater. Why? Because they violated the law of God that much more. Be not deceived, the Bible says. Galatians chapter 6. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Make no mistake. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And then Paul's admonition to the believer, be not weary in well-doing for a due season. You'll reap if you faint not. Let us understand this with great clarity this morning. The law is not dead if you reject Jesus Christ. But if you accept Jesus Christ, you are dead to the law. Notice what Paul says back in Romans chapter 7. I, I love this. If I got goosebumps, I would get them right now. Verse 4, chapter 7, verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. I'm dead to the law. The law did not die. 
I'm not trying to make a bigger deal out of this than it is. But we need to understand Christ did not sever the reality or the judgment of the law. The law is very much alive. But the law's burden and the law's, su- the, the, the law's uh, attack on the person is dead to me because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior as it is dead to every single person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why if you're here and you're not saved, come to Christ. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He loves you. He died for you. And His blood is efficacious or effective. He washes you free from every single sin if you will put your faith and trust in Him. You're saved by grace. But if you reject Christ, you'll be judged by works. Verse number four. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. That we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. That you should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, spiritually, we were, we're just following this illustration. Married to the law. The law did not die. But I died to the law. Remember this statement that we made throughout Romans chapter 6? I am co-crucified with Christ. Okay. Go back to Romans 6. Some of you are like, we said that? We didn't say it. I said it. And you said amen. I'm co-crucified with Christ. Verse number one, what shall we say then? We continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Is there still sin in the world? Come on, is there still sin in the world? Yeah, there's still sin in the world, but I'm dead to that. It no longer has power or authority over my life. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his what? Come on, say it louder. We were baptized into his what? Death. Death. If you're Spanish, you can say deatho. <laughs> Don't know what the word is. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto. Okay, come on. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto. Let's do it louder. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto. That like as Christ was raised up from the. Come on, we're going to keep doing this till you get it right. That like as Christ was raised up from the. By the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is, come on now, for he that is, is freed from sin. Now if we be, 
with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dieth no more. Come on. Death hath no more dominion over him. I'm dead to sin. Sin's not dead, but I'm dead to it. I'm dead to the law. The law's not dead, but I'm dead to it. The law no longer has power or authority or control in my life. I don't walk around going, I shall not covet, I shall not covet. If I covet, God's going to kill me and I'm going to go to hell. Now, I need not covet. We'll see that in a minute. But that's not how I walk around living my life. Why? Because I'm dead to that. Not only am I dead to that, this is such a freeing biblical truth. Not only am I dead to that, I am married to another. I was under the law. I was, if you will, we're just using some metaphorical words here Paul's using. I was married, by the way of implication, married to the law. But now I'm dead, the law's still alive. The law's still here, I'm just dead to the power, the authority, and the control of the law in my life. Doesn't give me freedom to sin, but I'm just dead to it. And I'm married to another. I'm not dead to just hang out and do my thing. Like, hey, I'm a Christian zombie. One of these Christians is doing his own thing. No, no, no. That was a funny line if you're from the 80s. I'm dead to that. Married to another. Well, what do you mean married to another? Well, look at the verse. That we should be married to another. You see how hard it is to preach? Even to him who is raised from the dead. Well, who is raised from the dead? Jesus Christ. That we should bring forth fruit unto God. I'm dead to the law. I'm alive to Christ. And my point is, I'm to live to bring fruit unto the one who I am now married to. I live to please somebody else. The story is told of Mel and Brenda. Mel and Brenda had been married for 25 years. They had a great marriage. They loved each other. 45 weeks out of the year on Friday when he got home from work, Mel would bring Brenda flowers. And Brenda loved him. Any ladies in here love flowers? Anybody? Way to be proud and not raise your hands above. I say, right here. You could raise it a little higher. I couldn't even see it, and I'm out front. How many of you like flowers? Like, okay, good. That's how Brenda was. Brenda loved flowers. So 45 weeks out of the year, a couple weeks for vacation, Christmas, Thanksgiving. He didn't do it on a Friday, but constantly bringing her flowers. She loved all kinds. She loved them roses, Easter lilies. Those little sunflower-looking flowers. I mean, she liked it all. She liked nice ones. She liked non-nice ones. She liked expensive ones. She liked cheap ones. I mean, Brenda was the, really a flower child. She loved flowers. 25 years. One day, Mel brings home some roses. Brenda sniffs them. She dies. It was sad. I can't believe you're laughing at the death of Brenda. It's a fictional story. Brenda dies, and she goes from smelling roses to being at the pearly gates with St. Peter, 
and Brenda's off in the sunset. Mel mourns for Brenda. He mourns the loss of Brenda for about 48 hours, and he gets married to Fran. <laughs> he shouldn't get married before the funeral. But he, <laughs> he got married to Fran, and you guessed it, Mel brought, bought Fran flowers. Only one problem. Fran didn't like flowers. Made her sneeze, made her gag, it made her itch. She hated flowers. Any ladies in here not like flowers? Other than my, there's like four of you, praise God, four or five of you, praise the Lord. It's nice being married to a woman that doesn't like flowers. Um, but she, she didn't like flowers, and, and she just wasn't her thing. Mel tried all kinds of flowers. She hated every one. He tried different colors. She hated it. He kept promising, I'm going to get you some flowers that you're going to like. He'd go to a new florist. He'd tell the florist his problem. And my wife, she just doesn't like flowers, but I want to show her love by getting her stuff that she doesn't like. And so I want you to help me find flowers she likes. So, so Mel just, I mean, he was diligent to buy Fran flowers, and she did not enjoy any of them. Finally, one day, Mel walks in with this giant bouquet of flowers. He says, Fran, you're going to love these and he hands them to her. She looks at him with utter disgust, takes the flowers, turns around, walks outside, deposits them in the garbage can, and walks back in the house. And Mel was stunned. And he said, what'd you do that for? She says, well, I hate flowers. And Mel responded in so much Christ-like wisdom. He said, well, Brenda loved them. And Fran looked at him and said, I'm not Brenda. Brenda's dead. Buy me chocolate. <laughs> You're married to another. You're married to another. One commentator said this, the underlying emphasis of the book of Romans is that salvation produces total transformation. Total transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin for you so that you could be the righteousness of God through him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You got saved, and it is entirely expected of you, Ephesians 2.10, that you would live a righteous life unto good works. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 19. Would you turn there real quick? I just want you to see it. Two, three books to the right. Galatians chapter 2. A life-changing passage of Scripture. For I, through the law, Galatians 2.19, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm still alive, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, or this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ 
is dead in vain. If you think that righteousness comes and you're going to prove your merit, your worth, your value by keeping the law and doing rites and religious practices, and that's what's going to merit your salvation. This is what Paul is saying to the church at Rome. This is later what he says to the churches in Galatia. If you think that's the case, then Christ died in vain. We do not serve Christ to earn salvation. We are freed from the bondage of the law. But, verse number 4 back in Romans chapter 7, we are to bring forth fruit unto God. Now, tonight we'll finish 5 and 6, but, which is a beautiful. I cannot wait just to talk about it. The fruit in the believer's life is to exist in two dimensions, two ways. The first one is attitude. It's attitude. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. I misquoted a little bit. Against such there is no law. The first fruit of the believer's life is your attitude. You know where everybody in this, life, in this room gets screwed up? It's in your head. It's always in your head. Everybody in this room does this one thing. You run scenarios through your mind. Come on. We should have had like more amen. I know you don't want to act like you talk to yourself. But it ain't just addicts walking down the street talking to themselves. It's Baptists too. I've seen some of you in your cars. You're having conversations, and you left your phone at church because I have it on my desk. Like, who are they talking to? Oh, you're talking to yourself. And you're running through a scenario in your mind. If I get home and my wife says that, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And you, you almost never tell yourself to respond in love, joy, and peace, do you? I'll tell you what, I'm not, that woman, she's going to regret the day she married me. Bro, she's done that many times already. (laughs) Attitude. The reason some of you can't stay in your jobs is because you have a crappy attitude. And you're a really bad Christian. Because the fruit that we bring forth to God is first an attitude fruit. Now, it's not an attitude fruit at the exclusion of action. There are two sides to the same coin. Because a good attitude produces good action. You ever notice when you have a good attitude, you normally have a good day? Like a good day at work and a good day with people and you're more productive at work. You say, yeah, I went to one of those seminars and they told me to get an oil diffuser and and to have rosemary and tangerine smells in my office and that'll make me good. Well, I don't care what you do with a diffuser. It really doesn't matter to me. But you could be in the middle of a sewer with a good attitude and bring glory to God. The Spirit that brings glory to God is an attitude and an action, and they move forward together at the same time. 
I just feel burdened to say this. You know what would rescue and salvage some of your marriages here this morning? Is if both partners in the marriage just said, in my spirit, I'm going to bring glory to God. And just in my spirit, I'm going to bring glory to God. In your interpersonal relationships, you have a brother, a sister, a mom, or a dad, or whatever, a, a, a coworker, whatever the case may be. If your spirit would, listen to me, if your spirit would change towards them, your action will change towards them. And if your action changes towards them, it's going to be amazing to see what God does. But the reason that you're habitually jacked up in your relationship is because you're still judging people by the law if you're a believer and you're not judged by the law. Well, they didn't do this, and they didn't. And we become very legalistic, and every Christian is a wonderful, wonderful defense attorney for themselves. Well, the reason that I blew up at you was because of this. You did this, didn't you? And your house becomes a tumultuous courtroom with all the tension of a huge lawsuit as opposed to a dwelling of grace. And you're not dead to the law. You're anything but. You, you, some of you should get like a, a little desk plaque that says, you know, if you were in England, we'd say solicitor whoever or attorney so-and-so graduated from the law school of self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, and selfishness. 4.0, head of the class, and got hired by the greatest firm ever, Satan's team. Why? Because you want grace shown, but you don't want to die to the legalistic nature of the law and give it. In your mind. That's why the Bible commands us to think on things that are true and lovely and honest and of good report and worthy of praise. And if we think about it, then it will translate into our actions. You see, this just isn't some super deep theological reality. All theology, everything we learn about God translates into joy and peace in the believer's life if you'll apply it to your life. That's what 1 Peter uh, 1, 2, and 3 talks about. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, according to His divine power, hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How is He given us? By learning about Him and learning our dependence on Him i got to stop for time. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, your life is never going to be fixed if you're still tied to the law. You're still under the law. If you die without Christ, you will be judged by the law. Remember the judgments we read about out of the Revelation? You will be judged in an eternal judgment. And there's no escape. You can come to Christ because He loves you and He died for you. If you're here today and you're a believer... And you've been taking yourself under the law and you've been living this legalistic, rigid, i got to make Jesus happy by being perfect and it's my job to keep everybody else around me perfect so that we can have this perfect Stepford Wives kind of world and everything just seems wonderful. Stop it. Be a grace-filled Christian.
and let God do His work in your life and in the lives of others. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.